0: Well, this is Palm Sunday, although the Sunday's changed over the years. Today, it's often called Passion Sunday, and we read the entire Passion of Christ in the service, the whole thing. And why is that? That's because so many people stopped coming to the Holy Week services. And the bishops became concerned that many young people were coming to church on Palm Sunday, and hearing that Jesus rides into Jerusalem was welcomed with people, crowds of people shouting, Hosanna! And then the next Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. What an adventure, ride into town and rise from the dead. And the whole drama of Holy Week was being lost. So I encourage you, even though we did read the whole Passion Service, to give thought to attending the services during Holy Week this week. Father Michael will will work through them for you during the announcements and tell you the times. I'll just go ahead and say the Friday and Saturday noon services are fairly short. That's because people oftentimes take a break from work and come over. Um, So it's Palm Sunday. Sometimes it's called Passion Sunday. I think it ought to be called Whiplash Sunday. Because, wow, what's going on here? We begin with a high note. Hosanna, and the crowd's shouting. And shortly we get hit with, crucify him. And then Jesus dies and is buried. The readings careen wildly from triumph to death. So let's keep the passion in mind as we focus on the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Because actually there were two processions into Jerusalem this very week, more than 2,000 years ago. Both were led by men claiming authority, total authority. The first is the one described in our gospel reading for today. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, an unbroken donkey no one had ever ridden before accompanied by his disciples more than just the 12 we think of but thousands thousands of Galileans who had accompanied him on this journey all the way from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south and we'll talk more about this procession later of course the other procession under royal authority if not a royal possession itself was of one representing in his mind at least the highest royal authority and that was Pontius Pilate arriving in Jerusalem Now, we aren't told of his arrival in Scripture, and I'm not claiming that the two arrivals occurred at the same time, but certainly within a few days of each other, because the Bible tells us that Pilate was in Jerusalem during this holy week, but Pilate did not live in Jerusalem. Why would he? He would have had no desire to make a permanent residence in this Jewish city. Why would he when there was a perfectly good Roman city not far away? And we know from other sources that Pilate made his home in a city right on the bank of the Mediterranean Sea, Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea on the Sea, a city dedicated to Caesar, the emperor of Rome. It had been built by Herod the Great. Construction started just a year after the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, had become ruler of Rome. And so Herod named this city after his new best friend. And at the time of our story this morning, the entire city was only built 40 years before. For the ancient world, it was brand new. I mean, this building is 50 years old, and it's in pretty good shape. A brand new city, the Roman capital of all Judea, the Roman capital of a Roman province, and the home of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. While the Jewish people looked at Jerusalem as their holy city, the Roman people looked at it as a dump, a dingy, old, broken-down foreign town to their eyes, but only 50 miles away was Caesarea. That's a two-day march by Roman standards. And I've been there. I mean, I arrived on a bus, I didn't march there. There was a man-made harbor which people compared to Cleopatra's harbor in Alexandria. The engineering itself was a huge accomplishment, dumping hundreds of thousands of tons of limestone into the Mediterranean Sea to create a safe harbor for boats. There is a hippodrome, an arena for huge horse chariot races. Think about Ben Hur. It was the scene of gladiator games. Think about any movie with gladiators. After the fall of Rome, after the fall of Jerusalem to Rome in AD 70, um, 2,500 Jewish prisoners were marched from Jerusalem to these hippodrome to be killed in the games in one year. There was also theater to put on plays about how the gods torment us humans. And it was a place where the powerful tormented the powerless. In other words, it was a Roman kind of place. And as we learned for sure in 1961, it was the home of Pontius Pilate. Although we'd always suspected he'd lived there, I mean, where else would he live but a Roman city. Uh, And there, there is one mention in historical documents of Pilate's palace there, but in 1961, a stone plaque was found which reads, this is the home of Pontius Pilate. He's not some character made up by a gospel writer. We know not only that he lived, which we know from multiple sources, but we know now that his palace was in Caesarea. There's a stone marker from the first century marking the place. In fact, it was reused as a step in a building that was built in the 300s, so it's hardly a forgery. And we can leave the world of historical documents and stone markers and go to our imagination for a minute. It's not hard to imagine why Pilate has left the pleasures of Caesarea for the dumpy, dingy foreign to his eyes at least city of jerusalem it's because it's passover the jews are gathering to celebrate their deliverance their deliverance from slavery in egypt and what Pilate knew that jews get a little rowdy at passover and maybe as they celebrate their deliverance from egypt they might think about their deliverance from the oppression of rome Only four years before Jesus' entry to Jerusalem, at the time of Passover, a group of Jewish um, protesters had traveled to Caesarea from Jerusalem to demonstrate directly outside Pilate's palace, because Pilate had ordered that Roman imperial symbols be displayed at the temple. And so, perhaps Pilate thinks to himself that Passover is kind of a delicate time. Maybe he'd better be on the scene just in case some rabble crowd shows up, claiming their precious Messiah had appeared. And I won't push our collective imagination anymore other than to suggest that when Pilate enters Jerusalem, he's probably not riding a donkey with a bunch of ragtag disciples behind him. I would suggest he's probably on a majestic war horse at the front of a significant number of Roman soldiers. And perhaps he thought to himself, as he looked at these Jewish people, he said, you celebrate the deliverance your God gave you from the Egyptians hundreds of years ago. But guess who controls you now? And guess who controls the Egyptians now? We do. We don't know if he thought that, of course, but if he did, it would certainly be true. However he arrived or what he thought, certainly his procession entering the city would have projected arrogance and power. It would have been a very different picture from Jesus arriving on a donkey, leading a band of disciples, and again, a huge, motley crowd of followers. They'd been with him all along this journey, from Galilee in the north, across the Jordan River, down to Jericho, and then back up to Jerusalem. As he passed through Jericho, a blind man had called him the son of David, and Jesus had accepted that title. And of course, he'd also given the blind man his sight. He'd taken on to himself the title of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one who would bring salvation to the nation, salvation to the Jews. He set his face to Jerusalem. His focus is to get to Jerusalem and the crowd he leads is excited. You can imagine they get more excited the closer they get to Jerusalem. What's going to happen? What will this final confrontation with Rome look like? And Jesus sends ahead for a donkey colt, an unbroken donkey to ride into Jerusalem. It's a symbol of his power over nature that he can go to this unbroken donkey, mount it and ride into the city. And why does he do this? Matthew tells us in, our, in, our, in the first section of Matthew you read today. It's a very deliberate and clear fulfillment of Scripture. Matthew himself quotes Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, this Old Testament prophet writes. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Surely some of the disciples and those Galileans with him remembered this scripture. That the sign that the Messiah is here is that one who claims to be the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. There's an echo here of Solomon being crowned and anointed as king. When he rode into the city, he rode on a donkey. Why? Because he's sim- coming out of a very short civil war and he's symbolizing to the people I'm not going to come in and conquer you. I'm going to accept the gift of the throne you're making to me. And many in the crowd thought, This must be the king who will establish his kingdom. And that's why they shout, Hosanna. It's a Hebrew word that means Lord, save us. Lord, in this sense, and a political, as a political Lord, save us. Save us from whom? Save us from the Romans. This must be the king who will establish his kingdom. And it turns out that it is, but not in the way that they expect. He's coming in to rule and he's coming in to save, but not by taking power and killing, but by losing power and dying. He's going to triumph through weakness. And his followers can only come to salvation by repenting and admitting their own weaknesses. We're not saved by our good works, we're not saved by a strong Savior who does do good works that we can follow so that we can be like Him, and that is where our salvation lies. Jesus sets an example for us, but it's an example we cannot meet. We need a strong Savior, but we can't identify with a strong Savior because a lot of people aren't strong. I'm not strong. Every once in a while, people say, You need to strengthen your faith. Well, I guess so, because it can't get much weaker. I'm weak. But that's okay to have weak faith. Because God will honor even weak faith. The man comes to Jesus. You'll remember the story from Mark. He's not sure if Jesus can heal his son or not. And Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, Lord, I believe. Help my disbelief. I believe, but help the part of me that is weak. And Jesus honored that man's weak faith. Jesus offers salvation through weakness so that people can have salvation through grace in spite of our sin. You see, even Pilate is puzzled by this because to Pilate, power is everything. And Pilate is puzzled. How can this man be a king when he even refuses to rebuke the accusations against him? How can he claim to be a king when he has no army? How can he claim to be a king when he makes truth claims, but he doesn't have political power to back up those claims to truth? Because the Pilate power is Pilate's political ideology and his religion. It's what he worships. But Jesus comes in on a sign of weakness, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And his disciples, a multitude of disciples, lined the pathway with robes and waved branches to welcome him into the city as a conquering hero. 200 years earlier, a man named Simon Maccabee had ridden into Jerusalem and the crowds had welcomed him in because he had defeated the Greek foreign armies and kept an independent nation. And the people gathered and waved palm branches to honor him and to welcome him into the city. Maybe this crowd remembers that older entry and tried to recreate the scene. Perhaps this man would bring a permanent restoration of the nation, restore Israel to its glory. But we know what will happen because we just read it. It will be a different crowd that shouts, crucify him. We're told clearly the Galileans come in with Jesus and then the crowd in Jerusalem shouts, crucify him. But you know, it's hard to imagine that some of the disappointed Galilean disciples didn't join the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They didn't make up the main crowd shouting it, but surely some had joined it. His closest disciples didn't join it, but they'd fled away. Peter probably didn't join it, but he denied that he even knew Jesus. We just read the story. This man, this Jesus who rode the donkey, wasn't the Messiah they expected after all. He'd let them down. He hadn't been the king they expected. And surely some who followed Jesus all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem joined in the crowd shouting to crucify him. Isn't it true that often we look to God and say, you need to give me exactly what I need from you? What did these people think they needed from God? They needed a Messiah to bring judgment down on the people they thought were ruining the world, the Romans. What they really needed was someone to come down to bear the judgment for them because they were ruining the world, because everybody in the human, po- uh, human race is part of ruining the world. What they really needed was pardon and reconciliation with God. People wanted a powerful, strong, victorious king, but they got a humble, weak, and dying king. But as we'll see this week by Easter, this humble, weak, and dying king will be raised by God the Father to be the powerful, strong, and victorious king who conquers not the Roman Empire, But who conquers sin and death itself? He wasn't the king they wanted, but he was the king they needed. And we can't pick and choose what parts of Jesus we will accept. It's all or nothing. Pastor Tim Keller puts it like this, and I like his phrasing We must either accept Jesus or reject Jesus, but we can't like Jesus. Because Jesus can't be liked, because he's the Lord. You accept that he's the Lord or you reject that he's the Lord, but you can't just say you like Jesus. It's not one of the options. We can't accept the Lord Jesus into our lives and say, Lord, Lord, Jesus, come into my life. Jesus, I want you in my life, but Lord, you have to stay outside. We must accept Jesus as Lord. We can't say, I want Jesus the healer, but I don't want Jesus the king. I want him to heal me, heal my problems, but I'm not going to accept him as the king of the universe, I want Jesus to save me, but I don't want him to guide and direct me. You see, either Jesus is Lord or he's not worth bothering with. A few weeks ago, I preached to you on Nicodemus and I told you, if if you want a good moral teacher, the world's full of them. If all you want is just to be a better person, there's lots of options out there. We've had lots of great moral teachers, but if you want to be delivered from sin and death, then you have to follow Jesus. And you can't pick and choose which parts to accept. He's all or nothing. Well, this morning and the rest of our service, we'll recapture and recapitulate and reenact and replay and remember what we're going to be talking about on Holy Week. In our communion service, listen to it. We start off by remembering Palm Sunday. We'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Exactly what this crowd said as they welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. We move on to remember the night on which he's betrayed, Monday, Thursday. We remember his death, Good Friday, and his glorious resurrection, Easter Sunday. And we even skip ahead 40 days and remember his glorious ascension. And as we continue on to remember Holy Week, I encourage you to either remember or make it the first time you recognize Jesus as your king. Not the king that you want, the king that you need the king who defeated sin and death, your sin and death, and not yours only, but the sins and death of the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen.